Please turn them in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 through 32. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. The letter of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the wretchedly pagan city of Ephesus, the capital city of Asia Minor. Paul wrote this while he was under house arrest in Rome, and he wrote it to lay a solid doctrinal foundation for these believers so that they could then live out those doctrines for the glory of God. We're now in the middle of the application section of this letter. So what then is the call now that we are saved? Well, Paul tells us to please God with our lives and to use our gifts within the church so that we can all be growing and so we can all be maturing in our faith and thus glorifying God with our lives in full measure. That's what Paul's already told us. So as Paul said, here's what we can practically do. Put off the old man. In other words, stop living like a non-believer and put on the new man day by day and live like a Christian is called to live because this is who you now are if indeed you're a Christian. See, Paul has been showing us what the new man looks like and it's all very practical. Now that you're saved, what? Well, stop lying. Tell the truth. Be angry, but don't sin. And don't harbor anger in your heart. Don't steal. Work hard. Be generous to God and be generous to others. Guard your speech so that you edify and impart grace to people. And always be sure to never grieve the Holy Spirit of God who lives in you. What grieves in? Sin grieves him. Not just the sins that have been listed, but all sin grieves your amazing God. So, Instead of grieving Him, make it your aim to please Him. Make it your aim to honor Him. This God whom you love with passion. This God whom you love with fervor. Because this is the heart of the new person in Christ. Paul continues to show us what the new man looks like in the next couple of verses. Verse 32, let's look. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now here in today's passage, we continue to find out what we're called to put on and what we are called to put off as new men and women in Christ. See, now that we are saved, the call is to live like we are saved more and more and more. Why? Because Christianity is all about love. God's love for us when we least deserved it, And our love back to Him and to others in light of who He is and in light of what He's done for us. And love expresses itself with action. Heartfelt and passionate action. See, anybody know this? Jesus changes everything. Right? He changes everything. And a saved soul will live more and more like a saved soul because love compels us forward. So, Paul shows us what a saved soul looks like what the new person in Christ looks like, what we should be looking like as Christians more and more as people who love God. So please don't think of these things as burdens, but instead think of all this as some tangible ways that you can honor and glorify the God whom you love with passion, which is your highest privilege to do so. (laughs) And so we battle to put off sin and the things that dishonor God and And we fight to put on the things that glorify God because that's our great aim in this fading life. Beginning in verse 31, Paul shows us six more things that the new man in Christ puts off. And the first is bitterness. Put off bitterness. See, 
bitterness shouldn't be a part of the life of the believer. Right? What is bitterness? The word for bitterness means pointed, sharp, pungent, and piercing. The word describes something that's sharp and penetrating to the senses. A pungent taste or smell, or else something that's painful to the feeling. So the bitter person is sharp, smelly, (laughs) and causes pain, and that's not good. The bitter person is irritable, sour, and he's lost his smile. As one noted, the bitter person is in an irritable state of perpetual animosity that inclines him to harsh and uncharitable opinions of men and things that make him sour, crabby, and repulsive in his general demeanor, and that brings a scowl over his face and infuses the words of his tongue with venom. Again, none of that is good. See, bitterness is a heart issue, yes, but it reveals itself with action in the way that you talk. Bitterness reflects a smoldering resentment, a harsh feeling, and a brooding, grudge-filled attitude. About what? About life. About something maybe that happened. About a wrong done to you that you just can't let go of or something else. Wayne Barber said, the problem with many of us as Christians is not what we are eating, but it's what is eating us. And he's right. And then as Warren Wiersbe said, bitterness is the heart in the heart, makes us treat others the way Satan treats them when we should treat others the way God has treated us. And bitterness is sinful, and the call is to put bitterness off. In Hebrews twelve fifteen, the writer says to beware, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by this, look, many have become defiled. So bitterness brings trouble and defilement, not just to you, but also to others. See, a root is hidden beneath the ground, but it feeds the entire plant. And bitterness is like that. Bitterness grows. Bitterness spreads. As one noted, resentment toward God and those who have not fulfilled your expectations will grow bitter roots that destroy acceptance of yourself and others. If you don't forgive, you will develop a root of bitterness, and a bitter root will grow bitter fruit. And that's absolutely right. And the call is to Put that off and to give the situation over to God. See, your trial will either make you bitter or better. What about you? (laughs) Jesus said, love your enemy. You say, I don't have any enemies. But if someone in your life evokes resentment, bitterness, or hatred, that person then is an enemy to your spirit. And the call is to pray for them, to bless them, to be godly to them, to fight bitterness with godliness, and then to leave the rest up to the Lord up to the Lord, but your call is to be godly and Christ-like to them. See, bitterness is like a tumor that grows, and we are called to kill it, we are called to put it off, and we're called to be godly and Christ-like and kind instead. Why? Because we love Christ more than we love harboring this bitterness that's hurting us. Put it off. Put it off. Put away the old rotten garment of bitterness. As one said, Put away the grave clothes and put on the grace clothes. And the good news is that we can, right? In Christ, we can. We can put those things away more and more because we've been made new and because we have God the Spirit living inside of us to help us with these things. So put off bitterness in your life. Look, the saddest people I know are bitter people. 
especially bitter Christians, who not only make themselves miserable, but who also make everybody else around them miserable. What about joy? What about love? What about contentment in Christ? No. Put bitterness away from you. That is the old man. That is pagan. That, that is a mark of the unsaved world, and it shouldn't be a part of your life as a Christian. Put it away. Second, put away wrath. What is wrath? The word for wrath speaks of vehement anger that rushes along relentlessly. See, it's a rage. It's a tumultuous welling up of the spirit that seizes the person and moves him to just blaze up and boil sinfully over. The word is used to describe people in the synagogue in Nazareth where their rage at Jesus drove them to try to throw him over the edge of the cliff. The word is also used of the rage of the mob in Ephesus that led to the riot against the Christians there in Acts. So it's an anger that gets out of hand, a boiling over kind of anger, an anger that wells up and just explodes. And it's sinful and it should have no place among believers. What does it look like? Well, it's an outburst that later brings regret. Don't do that. It, it puts holes in walls. Don't, that's not godly. It, it's unrestrained when it should be restrained. It says things and does things that it later regrets, but it can't take those things back. It, it scares people. It, it's anger run amok. It's, it's not really controlled. It's not disciplined. It's, it's childish and it's ungodly. See, it doesn't walk away when it should have walked away. It it doesn't zip it when it should have zipped it. Instead, it goes with the flow of emotion that's welled up inside, and it reacts with sinful emotion that shouldn't mark a true believer. Put it off. That's the call. Put it off. See, Christians aren't those who can't control themselves who can't control their emotions, but instead, by the power of the Spirit of God who lives in us, and by the means of God that God gives in His Word to live the God-pleasing life, we are, and we can be more and more, self-controlled people, Spirit-controlled people who are able to put off the old and to put on the new more and more for the glory of God. So, put away wrath. Put it away. What about you? Third, the new man puts off anger. You say, aren't wrath and anger the same thing? No, they're not. Because while wrath refers more to a passionate outburst of rage, look, anger refers to an inner deep resentment that seethes, that smolders, and it's more of a settled indignation. So with one, you just lose control. But with the other, this anger here, it's something that's harbored. It's, it's mold over again and again. It's more subtle, deeper flowing, and a persistent antagonism against someone. This kind of anger simmers. <laughs> it's cultivated. It, it, it's a settled and sullen hostility. And while verse 26 tells us to be angry, but don't sin, the anger spoken of here isn't an anger at sin. It's not an anger at ungodliness. It's not a godly anger in any way. No, the anger mentioned here is a sinful anger that hangs on, that doesn't let go, much like bitterness. This is an anger that seeks revenge. Uh, but the Bible is clear that vengeance doesn't belong to us, right? Vengeance belongs to who? To God. 
Romans 12.17 says, repay no one evil for evil. And then Romans 12.19 says, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So you see the call? Not to be angry and to remember it, but to give our anger and our desire to retaliate over to God, and then just to leave it there, to back away. It's not, it's not yours to avenge. When we act in judgment towards others, we are usurping God's rightful role because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And again, not yours. It's a hard one for many of us. We want justice and we want justice now. But our call is to be patient and to trust God with all that. But we like to help God out. Anybody? We like to help him out by, by giving the person we're angry at um, just a look. You know, letting you know I'm angry. Uh, or else we shun them. Or we, we're not as kind or as Christ-like as we ought to be to them. Just so they know. Just so they know. See, We just want them to know that we're not happy with them. Well, the call is to put that away. Put that, that's not godly behavior. See, God alone can judge fairly, and we don't know all the variables, and we can't measure anyone else's heart. God maintains the moral order, not us. And on top of that, no one's going to get away with anything ever, not really. Everyone's going to answer to God. God will make sure that justice will be done in His way and in His time. On top of that, remember that the God of judgment is also a God of mercy, and so should we be. Aren't you glad God is gracious and merciful to you? Right? Think about that. The person you're angry at with right now may repent and may seek reconciliation. And just as God has extended mercy to us, so he may also extend it to others. Some of us don't like that. We want them to get theirs right now. But that's just because we're sinful. Look, vengeance is God's job, not yours. So let me ask you, will you move away from revenge? Will you let it go and let God handle your hurts? Are you ready to stop playing God? See, put it off. Put it off. Anger like this stinks. It's a stinky old garment that you shouldn't be wearing. Put it off. Fourth, the new man puts off clamor. Clamor is an interesting word because the word comes from the Greek word krazo. The word means to cry out and it suggests a rough guttural sound, an outcry, a scream, or a shout. The word pictures a loud shouting match between two people that reflects a kind of anger that's out of control. You ever seen an angry person and you walked away from that person and you said, that person is crazy. Anybody? That's the idea here. Talking about a shout or outcry of strife that reflects a public outburst that then reveals a loss of control. So there's lots of noise, yelling, confusion, and chaos. It describes people who get excited and so wound up that they raise their voices in an argument and they start shouting and even screaming at each other. Well, there's no place for that in the life of the Christian. See, that is ungodly behavior. That is behavior, the behavior of a lost soul. That's not the behavior of a saved soul. So, lower your voice. I can talk loud, I'm preaching. (laughs) Lower your voice, stay in control. Don't make a scene that doesn't reflect Christ or a Christian. Anytime you're in a, a discussion or an argument, we call them discussions. 
and you become aware that your voice is raised, that's when it's time to stop. To stop. You say, but that's how I was raised. You know, we're yellers in our family. Yeah, it's sinful. And it doesn't reflect the new person in Christ. You're called to put it off. Fifth, the new man puts off evil speaking. Evil speaking or slander is from the Greek word blasphemia, and it literally means to hinder, injure, or to hurt. The word then refers to speech that seeks to wound someone's reputation by evil speaking. So it's talking about words that are spoken to hurt, to destroy, to discredit, or to smite another person's reputation or good name by speaking evil against them. Well, we're called to put that off because that isn't how the new man or woman in Christ talks. Remember in verse 29, the new man, the Christian, is called to speak words that edify and to speak words that impart grace to the hearers. Not evil, not words that impart pain or trouble. So stop talking bad about people. Stop with the juicy stories about people. Stop with the talk that brings people down instead of building them up. Put that off, see. Look, anything that gives Christ a bad name fits here. And this hits home because while we may not swear and we may not curse, we often talk about things that dishonor God, things that would never come from the mouth of Christ. And the call here is to put all that off. Let me just remind you of what to put on. What? Paul told us, put on words that edify and that impart grace. That's what we put on. We put off this, we put that on. Words that edify. Um, Verse 29, edify refers to the process of building or construction. It speaks of spiritually building others up in the Lord. So that's the call, right? Instead of speaking evil of people and slandering them and tearing them down, the call is to speak words that build people up. Talking about speaking truthful words, biblical words, kind words, encouraging words, loving words, um, gentle words, and so on. What does that practically look like? How about this? Talk to people as if Christ is in the room with you when you're talking. Say nothing that would offend Christ. Say things that would honor Christ and speak as if he were there because he is. So no slander, but lots of building up for the glory of God. How about that? Paul also speaks of imparting grace to the hearers. We're we're to put that on. What does that mean? Grace means unmerited favor. This tells us that our words and our conversations should express God's grace to people so that people are greatly blessed after they talk with us. Christ teaches that even our enemies should be blessed by our speech. In fact, we're called to bless those who curse us, and grace is a good summary of how people should feel after they talk with us. Do they feel that way after they talk to you? They are so kind and gracious and godly, and man, you know, I can't wait to talk to them again. I am so blessed after talking with them. That's the idea. Not, well, I learned all the new gossip at the church, or or, wow, I, I, I do well not to talk to that person anymore, because after talking with them, man, I'm worse off. I'm just depressed. Not that. Not that. But instead, grace, blessing, building up. Is that true of you? From the poem that I read a couple of weeks ago that fits well here, I'm going to read this again. An unknown writer says, A careless word may kindle strife. A cruel word may wreck a life. A bitter word may hate instill. A brutal word may smite and kill. A gracious word may smooth the way. A joyous word may light the day. A timely word may lessen stress. A loving word may heal and bless. Lord, help us to put off 
evil speaking, for evil speaking has no place in the life of the new man. Six, the new man puts off malice. Put these away from you with all malice. Malice is a general term for evil that's the root of all kinds of vices. Malice speaks of ill will, wishing, and even plotting evil against people. Talking about a kind of depravity and a kind of worldliness that permeates our unsaved society, but that shouldn't be seen in the church and that shouldn't be seen in the life of the true believer. See, malice is a general mean spirit or disposition that puts self first and that desires to hurt another and even rejoices in the pain of another. Talking about the meanness and the wickedness that's normal in the world today, which is seen in actions and in words. Well, that shouldn't be a part of us at all. Not, not at all. Do you take glee in another's suffering? Are you a bit happy when bad things maybe happen to other people? You say, no, I'm good here. I, 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 I never commit that sin, but take heed. Because this sinister snake lurks and it's always ready to raise its ugly head and sink its fangs into you. So you need to guard your heart. You need to stay in the Word. You need to stay in good Christian fellowship. You need to be praying much. And you need to be using the means of growing in the faith that God gives to us. Or pretty soon we begin looking like the unsaved world around us because that's how it works. Hey, malice should never mark the life of the new person in Christ. But sometimes it does. I've seen it. Where Christians live and act and talk just like the unsaved world around them. How sad is that? We're called to be different. We're called to talk different. We're called to act different. We're called to reflect Christ in His Word. We, we love different things. We serve a different God. Everything is different. Or, and it should show by what we put off, and it should show by what we put on. And the question is, does it show? Is it clear who you are, a Christian who loves Jesus with passion? Paul tells us it should be clear more and more in our lives. Is it? So, Put off all these evil things and then look. We're called to put on a few things here in verse 32. First, the new man puts on kindness. Isn't that good? So instead of malice and anger and bad speech, we're called to be kind to one another. You say, well, that, that's self-evident. Well, no, it's not. Because some Christians aren't kind to each other. They're mean. So Paul says this for a reason, see. For a reason, what is kindness? The word kindness technically describes that which is useful, suitable, excellent, and serviceable. Here the main idea speaks of loving, affection, sympathy, friendliness, patience, pleasantness, gentleness, and goodness. Other words used to describe this kind of kindness are sweet, amiable, and virtuous. So the word describes a general kind of kindness and Christ-like attitude towards others. And this kind of attitude is to continue on throughout our lives. See, it's not a on-again, off-again kind of thing. No, it's a continual attitude of kindness and goodness towards each other. Let me ask you, are you a kind, pleasant, sweet, friendly, gentle, loving person to be around? Are you? If not, then something needs to change as a new person in Christ, as a truly saved soul, because this is something that Christians put on. You say, no, that's just who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm brash. I'm, I'm gruff. I, I'm rough around the edges. I'm prickly. Always have been, always will be. No, that's not, that's not an excuse. 
Because kindness is a quality of a new person in Christ. And lame excuses won't change what Paul says must be a part of our lives more and more. Put this on and keep putting it on more and more. That is the call. See, Another word to describe kindness is the word soft. You go, oh no. No way that's ever going to describe me. I'm a man. Okay, whatever. (laughs) Christ was this way. And he was the ultimate man. Gentle, humble, meek, soft in the sense of being kind and gracious and caring and loving and perfect. And he was also bold and truthful. That's true too. We're called to be like him. Are you? In contrast to being hard and harsh and abrasive and mean and brash and cold. Second, the new man puts on tenderness. A synonym for tenderness is the word compassion. The Greek word used here is the word splanknon, and it literally means inward parts. See, the people of the day believed that the seat of emotions wasn't in the heart, but it was in the intestines, in the bowels. So instead of saying, that man has a heart for God, they would say, man, that guy has the intestines for God. (laughs) The guts for God. But this really describes a person who has pity, affection, love, and compassion for someone else from the heart, where that compassion just wells up from within and then expresses itself with action. It's a wonderful quality of the Lord, right? This compassion, this tenderness. I mean, tenderness and compassion is how God feels towards all of His children. Heartfelt affection and loving pity from deep within the heart of God towards you, towards me, towards us. He loves you, His child, see? And it's real, and it's intense, and it's from His heart, and it's passionate. See, God isn't remote or cold or merely analytical towards you, His beloved child, or your needs, but rather... God is deeply moved by the suffering and the plight of His hurting people. And it comes from deep within the Lord. It it wells up inside Him. And it's real, it's passionate, and it's genuine. And we are called to reflect that same tenderness and compassion to everyone, but especially to one another. And the question is, does this word describe you? Tenderness. Compassion. Deep inward feelings of pity and affection for one another. And does it show? In Romans 12, Paul's showing them how they're called to live out their faith in light of all that God's done for them, in light of all His mercies and blessings that God has so richly lavished upon them. Look what he says in verse 9. Let love, this is in Romans 12, let love be without hypocrisy. Verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And and that is what real tenderness and compassion lived out looks like. Where we love with a godly love that's real. And this godly love is what marks us and sets us apart as Christians. But not only that, but we're to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Now there, Paul uses the word Philadelphia instead of agape, which refers to the natural love among brothers. And then he has another word that refers to family affection. So we're to love God and others, and that love is to mark us in Christ. But then, in respect to the love of our Christian brothers and sisters, we're to be marked by a devotion that's characteristic of a loving, close-knit, mutually supportive and caring family. 
And again, this is what biblical tenderness is all about. True love, heartfelt love and compassion, deep feelings for one another in the body of Christ that shows. Think about it. We're family. Whether you like it or not. We're family. As, as, as this body of believers. And, and, and because we have fellowship with Jesus, we therefore have intimate, deep, family relation fellowship with each other. What does this fellowship, this family unit look like? It's a sharing of lives together, praying together, crying together, laughing together, meeting real needs together, suffering together, uh, serving together, worshiping God together, spreading the gospel together, helping each other along and, and sharing in the things of Christ. I mean, this is, this is deep stuff here. And how's that possible without true compassion? How's that possible without true tenderness and heartfelt love and pity for each other in the midst of all the pains and struggles that we all have to face? It's not possible without that. Paul adds that we're to give preference to one another. What does that mean? It means this, I prefer you over me. And that's only possible when we truly care for one another. I have thought about it carefully, you are better than me. Think about what that would look like if everyone felt that way. I mean, we would have a church where everyone is looked up to and no one is looked down on and where everyone is treated with godly dignity, kindness, humility, and, and love in action. Talking about real tenderness from the heart that's seen in how we treat each other. Why? Because we love God. And also because we love each other and it's real. And it shows. And then we're to weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice and we show godly tenderness and compassion to each other because like father, like son or daughter. See? Are you tender and compassionate? Look, there are people, family members in this church sitting right next to you and you have no idea what they're going through. Not a clue. Pains, hardships, worries, fears, trials, deep losses, and tenderness in this body is desperately needed. Just assume that everyone needs some tenderness and compassion and you'll be right a majority of the time. Well, all the time. Be nice. (laughs) Be kind. Have some mercy. Because pains and trials abound. Someone next to you is worried about their child right now. Another is barely hanging on as they worry about their dying loved one. Another is dealing with sin done to them that no one else knows about, but they could use a smile or a hug or a prayer today. Another's dealing with an anniversary of their lost loved one. Another's worried about their finances. Another's struggling with an addiction or a disease or a lost loved one or myriads of other things. And tenderness is what's needed. And shouldn't it be freely given within the body of Christ? Anybody? Shouldn't it? And it's not just a checklist, but it's real and from the heart because we love deeply and we love intensely because it's God's love that's flowing through us. And this is what Christians do. This is what new men and women do. This is the garment that we are to put on more and more and more. Tenderness. Compassion. Pity. Everybody's hurting. Third. The new man puts on forgiveness. Verse 32, man, we're hitting it hard, are we not? (laughs) 
Forgiving one another even as God and Christ forgave you. Question, is Christ forgiven you? If you're a Christian, are you forgiven? A little or a lot? A lot. Yeah, understatement. God in Christ conveys a sense of Christ's finished work being the means through which the Father can now forgive sinners like us. See, the underlying motive for believers to forgive others is God's action through Christ toward us. So the call here is to forgive one another. The word forgive here is from the Greek word charizomai, and it means to give freely and unconditionally, or to bestow as a gift of grace, and then to remit a debt, thus to forgive. So the call is to extend grace, to show forgiveness, and to bestow favor. The word's in the present tense, so the call is for this to be the believer's continual practice. To what? To forgive, to remit the debt, to bestow grace on those who don't deserve it. So we in Christ are to wear this garment at all times and in all places, no exceptions. So again, the question, how has God in Christ forgiven you? You say a lot, right? Infinitely, infinitely, and that's key. I mean, we owe God a debt that we could never repay, not even for all of eternity because of our wretched sin against Him. We are all eternal debtors to Almighty God. Eternal debtors. We've wronged Him greatly because of our sin. And in His holiness, the thing that offends Him most is what we are. Look, one sin separates us from Holy God forever. One sin makes us enemies of God. One sin's enough to condemn us to eternal hell. And if one sin does that, think of the position we're in apart from Christ. Think of the insurmountable weight of debt that we all owe. It's a debt we could never repay. It's mind-boggling. That one sin is all it takes to condemn you to eternity in hell because sin committed against an infinite and eternally worthy God is worthy of infinite and eternal wages. And that's how offensive it is to God. That's how serious it is. That's how wicked it is to Him. And then think about all the many sins that we commit every day, either in word, thought, or deed. And then add all those sins up that you've committed this year. It's only been a week, right? Still a lot. Last year, this decade, in your lifetime, think How wretched and utterly offensive all that sin is to God. Holy God who hates every sin. God could easily hold us accountable for these sins and He could easily send us to hell. Easily. He could say, pay up. And our only response is, I can't pay up. And He could easily give us what we deserve. The just punishment for our sin, which is eternal wrath. And He has every right to do that. We owe Him, we can't pay the debt, and even punishment for eternity won't pay up what we owe. And all we can do is plead His mercy, right? Lord, have mercy on me. The good news is that we have a merciful God, right? The good news is that for everyone who believes, for everyone who casts themselves down at the feet of Christ and humbly surrenders to Him in true repentant faith, for everyone who pleads mercy, the mercy of God from His heart, look, we receive what we don't deserve from God. Amen. Forgiveness. Forgiveness, it means everything. And because of Christ and the cross, our sins as Christians are removed as far as the east is from the west. All our sins are cast into the depths of the sea. All our sins are cast behind His back. So every true believer stands forgiven of their sin that condemns them to hell because of Christ. Our debt of eternal wrath is canceled because of the cross. And this is indeed the best news in the history of the world. This is the best news a sinner could ever hear. Jesus, God the Son, was punished so all who believe could live. 
Jesus became our substitute for sin. As Christians, our sins were placed onto Jesus on the cross and God punished him so that he wouldn't have to punish us who believe. So he died so that we who believe could live. Result, forgiveness. Means everything. Means everything. Think, sinner, of what God has done for you. You deserve to go to hell and so do I. That's what we deserve. And we get heaven. We deserve wrath and we get mercy. We deserve judgment. We get grace in heaven. This is everything. Forgiven. Forgiven. And now, the call, as men and women, new men and new women, now the call, being forgiven so greatly by the Lord God Almighty, Now the call is to forgive one another in the same way God has forgiven us. That's the call. That makes sense, right? I mean, how can those truly forgiven not forgive when God has forgiven us of an infinitely greater debt? Right? now We have, uh, having been forgiven of so much, we are now called to forgive each other. What would happen if we forgave others in the same manner that Christ has forgiven us? I mean, truly done that. How many families would be restored? How many marriages would be healed? How many friendships would be reconciled? Not only that, how many spiritual lives would be restored as well? See, when you refuse to forgive, you're in sin. And when you're in sin, then you're not in a right relationship with your God. And when you do that, your own communion with God is is severed. It's It's hindered. One commentator said, if you look at your spiritual life and see a lack of power and depth, a lack of hunger for God's word, and a lack of love for the private place of prayer and communion, resulting in the loss of the richness in your relationship with God, it may be that there's a barrier of unforgiveness that you have built, which is preventing the Lord from giving you the forgiveness that issues in a sweet relationship with Him. If that is the case in your life, the Lord isn't going to open up the flow of communion with Him until you forgive where forgiveness is needed. And that's absolutely right. Sin blocks our fellowship. As Christians, when we sin, we're still saved, yes, but it hinders us greatly. And maybe worse than everything else, it it hinders our deep fellowship with God. Put it off. Put off unforgiveness. Put on forgiving others. Refusing to forgive hurts you more than anyone else. And the question is, is it worth it? No, it's not. And it's hypocritical. It makes a mockery of what God has so graciously and lavishly done for you. And it makes no sense. No one can possibly offend me to the extent that my sins have offended God. And so my call is to forgive. My call is a forgiven Christian is to forgive not only the little things done to me, but also the great things done to me. This is of God. See, this is Christianity. A couple of issues come up as we think about forgiveness, and we hit on this a bit a couple of weeks ago. One is this, that some things are pretty much impossible to forgive. So what then do we do? Well, because Jesus never gives stipulations on forgiveness, the call remains the call. And so for those things that we can't forgive, for those things that we can't let go of, then we go to God and we ask Him in faith for His divine help to do through us what we can't do on our own. With God, and He lives in us, with God all things are possible, and so we ask for His divine help, and when we truly do that, He will help us. Another issue is this. What if they don't ask for forgiveness or if they don't even want forgiveness? 
Some have said, well, you can't forgive someone who hasn't sought it out. They say that forgiveness is conditional only to those who repent. But I disagree. Because Scripture clearly emphasizes forgiving freely, generously, willingly, eagerly, and speedily from the heart. God forgave us when we were His enemies. God continues to forgive us constantly. Jesus prayed for forgiveness on those who were killing Him, and we are to forgive in the same way that He forgave us. Look, I think most sins against us can simply be let go of without the person who offended us even knowing about it. Just let it go. Maybe someone said something hurtful, spiteful, mean-spirited. Why can't we just let it go and move on? Give them grace for the glory of God. Just let the forgiveness flow. Let the grace pour out of you. Be like Christ was towards you, towards them. Too often, we're concerned about being right, about getting justice, about being disrespected and getting the apology that we so rightly deserve. But in the whole scheme of things, who really cares? Let it go. Let God take care of that. Leave it to the Lord. Remember that it's not about you. And let the grace flow, remembering that God sees you and God will reward you for honoring Him. So, forgive. Let the grace flow. Put on this garment because this is what Christians do. I read about a Spanish father and son who became estranged. So one day the son ran away and the father set off to find him. The father searched for his son for months and months to no avail. Finally, in a last-ditch effort to find him, the father put an ad in the Madrid paper. The ad read this, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. On Saturday, 80 boys named Paco showed up looking for forgiveness and love from their fathers. See, this world is not a forgiving place. And too many people have ruined relationships because they refuse to forgive. May that not be the case here. This story probably isn't a true one, but it does illustrate a good point, right? Forgiveness is indeed a rarity in our society, but it's not supposed to be a rarity here. Not here. So, what garments do you have on today? Stinking old garments of sin that shouldn't be a part of your life as a Christian that smell everything up? (laughs) Or new garments that reflect the new person that you truly are in Christ more and more and more? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Help us to constantly be putting off and putting on. Putting off these sinful things that we shouldn't be wearing and putting on the things that truly honor and glorify You. And Lord, thank You that we can do this more and more because we have been made new. We've been made alive. And we have the Spirit living inside of us as our helper. And we have the Word at our disposal, and we have prayer, which is powerful, and we have one another who can encourage each other. So help us to put these things off and to put these other things on more and more for your glory, because this is who we now are. Help us. May we encourage each other, and may we be a church that definitely knows good doctrine, chapters 1 through 3, but who also lives it out with passion. 
chapters 4 through 6. May we encourage one another. We love you. May we live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.